Hello and welcome to Full Contact Nerd, where we talk about fiction and storytelling in all its forms. From the weird to the fantastic, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, thrillers, mysteries, anything you can ask for, we have it. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Ellen Datlow, editor of Edited By, to be published by Subterranean Press, September 30th, 2020. Thank you for speaking with me. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure. So, I see from your bios that I've seen online, um, you started editing in 1980 for Omni Magazine. Is that correct? Yep. I started, um, well, I was, I started as associate fiction editor there. Mm-hmm. Um, and worked for about 17 years. Okay. Um, so how did you get into editing work back then? You mean editing anthologies or in editing in general? Oh, both, actually. Um, well, I I started in book publishing for about five years and didn't get any place, mainstream book publishing. Mm-hmm. And then I was at a point when I was unemployed, um, someone had, where I used to work at Holt Reinhardt and Winston, suggested I try a new magazine called Omni that was publishing, fan, um, sorry, nonfiction, science, and science fiction. Mm-hmm. And he knew I was interested in science fiction. So he suggested I check them out. They had just started, I think their first issue was October 1978. Mm-hmm. This was around 1979, the summer probably, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. And so I contacted them, went in. Ben Bova was a fiction editor at the time, and I begged. He didn't, he didn't have an assistant. He had a secretary who wasn't interested or didn't, and didn't read science fiction. Mm-hmm. Usually when you have an editor, they have an assistant or someone who's reading the slush pile for them. Mm-hmm. So I said, I'll do it. You know, I'd love to work here. I'd love to work here. And uh, basically I nagged him. I nagged him and Frank Kendig, who was the editor, which is kind of the editor-in-chief of the whole magazine, for a few months. And I think Ben knew that Frank was going to be kicked out, and Ben was promoted to editor, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but before that, I mean, he started having me come in to hang out a little bit. And he left. He went to the Brighton World Con in 1989, I believe it was, in August, and I was going to California for a week or two, I forget how long, but there was one week where I got back, a week before he was getting back, and he had this huge slush pile, because there was no you know, no one but him to read it. Mm-hmm. I said, I'll read your slush pile, I'll finish, I'll go through your slush pile before you get back, and initially he said no, you know, I mean, he didn't know me from a hole in the wall, but anyway, eventually... He called back and said, yeah, okay, you can come in and read my slush pile. And, of course, I, he got back, and I was totally finished with the slush pile. <laughs> mm, uh. It was about a, two feet high at the time um, mm. when it started. But anyway, he was promoted. They brought in Bob Sheckley, who was not really – he. I'm not sure he ever edited anything. I mean, he might have. I, he never worked at a publishing company. I know that. Mm. Um, but he was known for being a writer. And initially, Omni – wanted writers, like famous writers, to run the fiction department, basically to counteract the reputation of, it was owned by Penthouse. Mm-hmm. So to counteract that, they wanted someone, you know, who was well-known in the fiction community to give it credibility, the fiction which is why they originally hired Ben, who had been at Analog for many years and won a whole bunch of Hugos for them. Mm-hmm. And then, so they brought in Bob Sheckley, and, at, and then they made me associate fiction editor, which meant I would read. Well, neither Bob nor I really knew much about the hierarchy of 
working together. Mm-hmm. And so I basically, usually the assistant or the secretary, well, the assistant reads all the slush, but everything that's not slush, everything that's by well-known writers or what was sent in by agents are usually read by the editor themselves. But since neither of us had any clue as to how this worked, I read everything first and passed on what I thought was good to, to Bob. Mm-hmm. Um, after about a year and a half, Bob left to go back to writing. He had a writer's block for about a year and a half, which is why he took the job. And also with yeah. good money and great expense account mm-hmm. and prestige. <laughs> but anyway, that's how I got to Omni, basically. Now, I was initially supposed to be doing science fiction mostly. And a little bit of fantasy, but it was mostly supposed to be science fiction mm-hmm. and not supposed to be any horror. Although Ben Bova did publish Sand Kings, but that was science fiction horror and hit published George and Analog, and it won the Hugo. Mm-hmm. And um, I can't remember if Way of Course, he, public, he won for Way of Course and Dragon. He either won two Hugos and two Nebulas that year um, and one Hugo and one that, I can't remember which for those two stories from Omni. Um, but anyway, Omni started publishing about four or five pieces of fiction a month, but it got less and less each year because the more advertising you got, in a way, the smaller the well of the magazine gets, you have more advertising. <laughs> so they, all the nonfiction and fiction was cut back, and so after a while I was only editing like maybe two or three stories an issue. Well, this was, even in 89, I mean, I started in... 80, I, was, I think I became the fiction editor around 81. I'm not sure exactly, or maybe it was 80. Um, it was the fall of 80 or 81, I forget. But one of the editors at Penthouse approached me and said, I may have a deal to publish a bunch of, to do a, to package a bunch of anthologies. Would you be interested? You want to pitch? Give me five pitches and we can see what happens. So I gave him at the time, because Ben wouldn't let me buy certain stories, initially I had to answer to Ben. I wasn't totally independent. I had to show him everything I wanted to buy for the first year or so. Mm-hmm. And so he wouldn't let me buy certain horror stories, and I thought that some stories were too sexual for Omni. Um, we t- t- try to differentiate ourselves from Penthouse. Mm-hmm. It was, And I was just feeling my way into being a fiction editor and making choices and deciding what was right for Omni and what wasn't. So anyway, from what we turned down, what I turned down, but I loved, I made a list of like five or six stories on different themes. And I handed this these to the, the um, penthouse editor mm-hmm. with, you know, broad thematic things, no titles, but just say, how about this, how about that? And even though the deal with the publisher never came through, the first, two of the pitches became my first two half original anthologies, uh, Alien Sex and Blood is Not Enough. Blood is Not Enough with Vampirism. And Alien Sex was gender. And I went into the, I did those things. I did not want a conflict of interest with my regular job at Omni. So basically I started with stories that, horror stories that I didn't couldn't buy. And as I said, overtly sexual stories that we felt, that I felt maybe was too, too graphic at the time for Omni. So that's how I got into doing anthologies, by, you know, kind of slipping into it from the Omni position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, Omni magazine was one of the um, one of the uh, magazines that got me into sci-fi when I was a little kid. So, um. mm-hmm. and I was looking, and the, the first story, the earliest story that I um, chose for edited by, 
was um, Life Among the Invertebrates by Pat Murphy, and that was an alien sex, mm -hmm. so from 1990. Hmm. So that was like, that's the first story that I actually took from one of my anthologies. I would have taken, um, I mean, there's some very good stories and Blood is Not Enough, but I didn't take anything from there because the best thing, I think, uh, The Rag Fought by Rob Holstock and uh, Gary Kilworth was published and won the World Fantasy Award, but it's really long. It's a novella, so I didn't want to take oh, up that much space. So, so I saw that um, you also wrote an essay in 1980 called Time Traveler, so I'm curious about your... Oh, God. It was... I hate writing. I, it was so massaged. I mean, they made me, they wanted the editors to write stuff, you know, to pictorials. And I said, I can't, I can't write. They said, you have to do it. And basically they just rewrote it. Whatever I wrote, I don't even remember what I wrote. I mean, it was agony. I do not, I am not a writer of anything, nonfiction. It's agony to write introductions for me. Mm -hmm. So that was just something I was, my arm was twisted. I had, they made me do it and they basically totally rewrote it. So, I do not count that as anything I've ever written. I don't even remember what it's about. I mean, I, it was just a pictorial. I think I had to do some captions and write some stuff. But so whoever was my editor just rewrote it completely. Hmm. And I, I asked that because I wonder, I was wondering if your essays had anything to do with your approach to um, what material you choose, you know, for anthologies. Um, no, not at all. My, I don't do essays. Okay. <laughs> I mean, whatever intros are done, they're done to the... What I do usually, depending on how the anthology starts, mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes it's just a word of mouth. I talk to an editor and say, you know, we like that idea. You don't have to write it up or anything. I know who you are. We know who you are, blah, blah, blah. Other times I'll have to do a pitch. I'll do a mark, a submission to my, uh, you know, my, my agent, and she'll pass it on to various editors. Mm -hmm. So then I do, and I mix that with my guidelines to the authors, and that becomes the germ, you know, the seed of whatever introduction I write for the anthology. Mm -hmm. But then you have to see what comes in because you're not, you don't know exactly, of course, how an anthology is going to turn out until it's finished. Mm -hmm. So things that you may not have expected it to cover are things that will be in the book, you know, the story. So. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't write the intro until the book's finished. The stories are chosen. Right. I'm speaking with Ellen Datlow, editor of Edited By. You can find more information on her work on Facebook or Twitter under her name, Ellen Datlow. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my website, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. You can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal, historyrabbithole.com. And now back to the podcast. So, so I want to ask about the editing work, but I hesitate because, you know, you have a long and storied career and I'm sure your answers would change over time, but, or, or perhaps not. Um, you can let me know. The first question I have as far as your editing work is, you know, do you know offhand, if it's not an established writer, or I guess maybe if it is, do you know offhand early whether the story is working or do you have to do a few passes, assuming the writing itself is good? It depends on the story. I mean, some stories, you know from the very beginning that they're not, what a, they're not your taste or they're not interesting enough to continue. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and that may even be someone who I've worked with, although I usually hope those people know my taste by now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, you, know you, you get stories in that just don't work at all. And then it's exciting when you read a story or a novella. I mean, I was reading a novella that I could tell from pretty early on, unless they totally screwed it up, that I was going to love it. Mm-hmm. And I did. But I'm not, you know, it's not totally, for the novellas for tour.com, it's not only up to me to say, yes, I want that. It has to go through um, my boss, Irene Gallo, and it has to go through a P- a P&L, which means, you know, the profit and loss statement, just like any book. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm, but I knew immediately that I really loved the novella. Um, and I just, and I had faith, I had worked with the writer before several times, including on two novellas. So I was pretty sure that she wouldn't screw it up, but you never know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, you know, but if she did, I would have worked with her to try to fix it, if, if, unless it was something majorly wrong. Mm-hmm. So you can tell. I mean, you can tell. I mean, it depends on the story. Do you, Have you seen stories, um, and I'm sure you've read many hundreds of stories or thousands. Um, are there stories, have there been stories, and let's say the ones in this book, that you feel like didn't quite have it, but with the right, maybe extensive editing, it could hit the mark. You know, would you do put in that kind of work? It totally depends on the story and if I think it's worth the trouble and if I think it can be fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sh- I don't remember if there are any stories in this particular book that did that, mm-hmm. but certainly I've worked with writers extensively on specific stories that needed multiple rewrites and then, you know, and eventually we got what we were both happy with. But, it, you know, it, it depends on the story. If I think it's a brilliant story and has, or has really good bones, you know, and if I think the author and I are on the same wavelength, um, I mean, it happened. It's happened. What I will do sometimes when I really love something but I'm not sure what's going on, I will say to the author, you tell me what's happening in this story. And for one of this story, it was a novelette. It wasn't. It's not in this book. It was published. It was not published. It was published in a zine or a website. It was not published in the book. On the maybe on the second pass, I said, "I don't understand this. What's going on here?" And when the author told me what was going on, I was like, "Woo! That's not on the page at all. I did not get that. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you have to put more in. You have to put more hints in so that." at least some readers will figure out what the heck's going on. Because it was effective, and it was really powerful, but there are obviously things that I completely missed, and that means if I miss it, then usually most readers are going to miss it, because I consider myself, in a way, for a story that I think is really good, I consider myself the ideal reader. Um, if I don't get it, a lot of other people aren't going to get it, you know, comprehend what's going on. Mm-hmm. So totally, you know, not very often. I mean, I don't have the time or energy to work with someone I've never worked with. I mean, I have, you know, I've tried. Um, not as much now because I don't see a slush pile. Mm-hmm. But you know, I do work with new writers occasionally. And if it's something, if it's something I worth, think is really good and I can use it for tour.com or whatever I'm working on, I will work with the author. And sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't, you know. It totally depends on circumstance. Mm-hmm. How about um, the tone or style of writing? Are you particularly sensitive to that aspect of it? Uh, 
usually, I mean, style not as much as tone and character. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing is, different things can carry you through a story. Mm-hmm. When they all come together, you've got a brilliant story, but it's rare that everything, I mean, you know, everything can be perfect. And then it's a really great story, perfect in the sense that it all comes together and works beautifully. Mm-hmm. Um, an interesting plot or an interesting character can carry you through without stylistic chops, but having an interesting, having a beautiful style or a useful style that works. Different writers, some writers can write to different styles, or some just have one style. Um, it depends on what suits the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, it, it, again, it, the, tone, the tone is what makes it what genre it is, in a way. The yeah. tone is what differentiates dark fantasy from horror. Mm-hmm. Um, tone is not, I don't look for tone. Tone is just inherent in the writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the characters and the setting and the point of view. But tonally, tone is something else. I'm not, I've never actually thought about, I don't know how to define tone. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that's last. That's what makes you know what kind of story it is. I think, I and mean, that's in my point of view, my opinion. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so this particular um, volume, how, what what uh, time period does it cover? It covers uh, 1992. Let me see. The most recent story might be 2017 or 18. Mm-hmm. Uh, hold on. And the first one was 1990. And I think the most recent might have been, or this one, 2015. There might be one later than that. I think Richard Cadbury, Richard Cadbury, and I think that's more recent. That may be the most recent. Let me see. Where is his story? I don't know where his story is. <laughs> I guess I have them. Do I have them in the order of the stories? I'm not sure. <laughs> I think so. We're looking at 2016, but I think there was one later than that. Okay. So, I guess these stories cover a range of genres? Oh, yeah. The science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Mm-hmm. And a couple of them are just weird, you know? Okay. Mm-hmm. For example, um, Elizabeth Bear's Sunny Liston Takes the Fall, which I really love. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Del Rey anthology of science fiction and fantasy. Uh, I mean, that's real. it's just really unusual, and I love it. Do you have a preferred genre? And also, does that affect how you do your editing work, or do you try to put your preferences out of mind, so to speak? Well, it depends on the anthology I'm working on. Mm-hmm. If I'm working, mostly I'm doing horror anthologies now, although some are mixed. Dog Collection had fantasy, mostly dark fantasy and some horror, and maybe a little fantasy, but, you know, there might have been one just weird one, but usually they're dark fantasy or horror in that particular book. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I work for Tor.com, when I acquire short fiction, I've been trying to actually buy more science fiction. I'm not really interested in doing another science fiction anthology. I haven't done one in a long time. I actually prefer horror mm-hmm. uh, anthologies, usually the theme, although I'm actually doing a Shirley Jackson-themed anthology, so that will be a mix of tones from her different, you know, people influenced by different works of hers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I mean, it depends. Usually, it depends on the theme. Like if I've done a Poe anthology or Lovecraft, I want it to be horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, Echoes with ghost stories, and usually I consider them most them pretty dark. So, but for the in this particular volume, you said and it's it, just a mix. 
Anymore. It's definitely a mix, yeah. And I don't think I have a Richard Cadbury story in here, so I guess the most recent one might be the Stephen Graham Jones one. Sorry, I was like... <laughs> oh, no problem, no problem. So I did it's note... It's a mix. I mean, it's a real mix of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. I mean, it's got 72 letters, which was in my Vanishing Acts anthology. That's mm-hmm. um, by Ted Chang. And, you know, I've got several stories from my fairy t- the fairy tale anthologies of Kelly Lincoln. I'm sorry that... Terry Windling and I co-edited. So in a sense, or how should I word this? Um, So the publishing business is, I don't want to say cutthroat, that might be too um, harsh a word, but it's very competitive. So I'm just wondering, you know, you have your established credentials. Do you still find it, is it, is it, um, is it still rough to get out there and get your, your pitches accepted or looked at? Absolutely. Oh yeah, I mean each book is a chore. Mm-hmm. I mean it's each book is separate from every other book, and it's always touch and go. I have dead anthology projects. I've had anthology projects that were in a, that were dead for years. Like Final Cuts, my most recent anthologies came out um, from Blumhouse in uh, Anchor mm-hmm. Double Day, I think, and um, that was it's my it's a movie horror anthology, all originals. And that idea was originally proposed to me, pitched to me by Casey Lansdale, Joe Lansdale's daughter. And she wanted to do it, and we wanted to do it one together, and co-ed one of and we couldn't sell it. Um, her idea was to try to get, she had some contacts in Hollywood and tried to get some movie people to write stories. We could not sell that book. So I love movies, and I love horror. Mm-hmm. I decided to do a reprint anthology, and I called it The Cutting Room, and I did that for Tachyon, and that was all reprints except one original, a short, a very short story by Stephen Graham Jones. Mm-hmm. And um, so I kind of, because I couldn't sell, we couldn't sell the original one. Mm-hmm. So I published that. I really enjoyed doing it. And then Lisa Morton and I co-edited an HWA anthology for Blumhouse uh, called Haunted Nights. It was supposed to be a Halloween anthology, and it was, but they wanted to call it something broader. Mm-hmm. And so that did well enough. I approached my editor and said, but how would you like to do you know, a movie horror anthology? And since it's Blumhouse books, they're connected to the Blumhouse media empire, shall we say, or film guy, mm-hmm. um, they said yes. So I went, I actually, the title, Final Cuts, was the title of the Casey came up with. And so I went back to Casey and I, I, you know, I didn't have to ask her blessing, but I didn't want to, you know, tread on her toes. So I said, I'm doing an anthology, the movie horror one, I'm doing it for Blumhouse. Can I use the title? And she said, sure. So, you know, so yes, I mean, so that, I don't remember, I don't know the time between we actually pitched the first idea of the book to when it finally I sold it, but it was at least five years, not more. And that happens. You know, I have ideas floating around that I want to do and no one's interested and then someone else suddenly is interested or not. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Or once in a while I'm approached, I was approached with um, the Poe anthology. I was approached by Solaris. It was posed by Centennial coming up. Mm-hmm. And Solaris is a British publisher. And they approached me about doing a Poe-inspired anthology. And I said, yeah, that would be great. So how do you deal... So when you get your collection of short stories together that you want for the anthology, and since it might take a long time, 
do you have some writers who pull their stories back for, you know, they're going to publish elsewhere for some reason, or how do you manage yeah, that? They know that the book is, that the book has to be, they know that the story is going to be in a book eventually. I mean, I don't buy the stories unless I have them in a contract. Hmm. Publisher, so they know it's not like I buy the stories in advance or tip buy, or solicit stories before I have a deal. So they know they have a contract with me, you know, and I have a contract with the publisher. Now, if a book is delayed for some reason, I will go back to the author and say, I hope this is okay, you know. And in the, my contract with them, usually there's an exclusivity period, mm -hmm. uh, can be from one year to two years, it, it, depending on what the publisher wants. It, and it, without an exception for the year's best. Now, I have one, some writers, first Carol Oates, if she likes an idea, she'll write it immediately. And she wrote a story, I tried to sell an anthology. Oh, Lisa Morton and I tried to sell another anthology. We couldn't sell it. But I told, so what you do is when you have an idea, you ask, you ask various writers, I am trying to sell this anthology, are you interested in writing for it? And it, People say yes or no. The problem with Joyce is if she's interested, she'll write the story immediately, which you do not want because you don't have a deal, you know. <laughs> and so in that case, I had to tell her we can, we didn't sell the book. You just you can sell it, you know. Go please sell it elsewhere. But that's unusual. I mean, usually people, usually writers don't start the story until the book's sold, and that's what I expect that so they wait. So it does seem then that when you do pitch an anthology idea to publishers, that your reputation and I have certain writers, but they're not committed. If that's what you're going to ask, I mean, you can't. I can say I have so these five writers, these best-selling writers, interested. Mm -hmm. But just because they're interested doesn't mean they'll come through. Mm -hmm. I mean, hopefully they will. They're usually reliable. But you know, things happen. The pandemic happened, and people have lost all their creativity. Yeah, whatever. Um, someone dies in their family. Something happens. You know, just you cannot guarantee that a writer is going to write their story. Mm -hmm. And they promise. I mean, they'll feel really guilty, and I'll feel really badly. But you know, what can you do? You can't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What you can do is what you try to do. What you do is try to find another writer of the same stature to to take their place. Mm -hmm. But even um, even without the guarantee of any writers, when you approach publishers, your reputation still gives you some some weight as far as a bit. But they still want to know who's going to be it. They still want to know. Depends on the publisher. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, one book I had to guarantee certain writers. I mean, certain number of bestsellers, mm -hmm. and I hate doing that. I mean, I hate that, you know, like, but luckily I have some writers who are bestsellers whose work I love, mm -hmm. and who will usually write a story for me. And then I've got another, you know, I have another contract with the publisher. They don't, I didn't have to tell them who was in the book. They know that I'm going to get good people. Mm -hmm. So it totally depends on the publisher. How do you, um, or do you even keep up with current trends as far as what ideas and, and, you know, pop culture references are I popular. I try to avoid them. Trends are not going to be, you cannot predict what's going to be a trend in two years. A book, hmm. from the start to the finish, from the idea to the publication of the book, it takes at least two years. Okay. At least. And by that point, the world moves on. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not going to write to trend. Okay. Um, 
You know, I mean, I, yes, I mean, if I'm aiming for a bicentennial, I mean, the Poe thing, mm-hmm. I guess. But I had enough, you need enough time. I mean, I've had situations where a publisher wanted me to do a book for something. I said, that's ridiculous. Oh, in fact, um, initially, the publisher of Final Cuts was thinking of public, they were thinking of publishing around Academy Awards. And my agents and I were looking at each other and <laughs> No one cares. No one who watches the Academy Awards is going to care about this book. <laughs> Don't they realize that? That it's to, to, to publish it then? Who cares? So we made that argument and my editor agreed, you know. Although it would have been a rush or else it would have, would have been a year later. I mean, it was silly. Mm-hmm. You know, be practical. Come on, guys, you know. And no one in Hollywood cares about a book and stories. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, they're not going to, it's not going to make, increase the sales because this book is about you know, has stories about Hollywood and movie making. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's fiction, guys. Yeah. <laughs> it's an anthology, you know. So, I mean, sometimes marketing ideas, you know, a publisher has a good marketing idea, and sometimes they don't pan out. I mean, I was really disappointed. It's not my publisher's fault at all, but I was disappointed. I did a book on Alice in Wonderland. Mark, oh gosh, uh, I, mean, I can't remember the title. Something in March Hairs. Uh, it was. Hmm, Stories inspired by Alice in Wonderland, mm-hmm. and a really cool cover by David King. And I was hoping that you know, there's the Alice in Wonderland Society. Like, well, why not? You know, how about ordering some books? You know, and then no one ever responded. You know, it's like, oh, come on, it's a it's an Alice in Wonderland book. Isn't there a way we can market this? I mean, I you know, I didn't know. I, I don't blame the publisher, and I'm not even sure what we could have done. But it just seems sometimes when you do have an idea. Mad Hatters and March Hairs, that's the title. Mm-hmm. And it seems like you could do something. Um, I mean, I did do I did do a reading with some of the writers in um, uh, a bookstore with Alice in Wonderland themed in Connecticut that was fabulous. It was a lot of fun and people wore hats. Right. And I also did a, a crazy hat competition at George, Mar- George R. R. Martin's Santa Fe movie theater. You know, I mean, but it seems... And it didn't sell books. It didn't sell more books than usual, which is weird. You know, you think, mm-hmm. okay, here we have some great ideas, but why isn't anyone buying the book? You know, like, so yeah, you can. You know, it's disappointing when you think you have something that can a selling point, and it doesn't work. Yeah. But anthologies are a tough sell. Hmm. People say they want them, and then they they don't buy them. Interesting. You know? <laughs> And not as much as you'd like them to buy. Right. I'm speaking with Ellen Datlow, editor of Edited By. You can find more information on her work on Facebook or Twitter under her name, Ellen Datlow. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my website, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. You can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal, historyrabbithole.com. And now back to the podcast. So is all the reading you do what you edit, or are you able to find time and energy to read other stuff? Mostly it's what I edit. Well, I'm working on the best horror of the year all the time. Mm -hmm. So I read things for that. I mean, I read novels that, but I'm very choosy in the novels I pick to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, 
you know, there's only there are only one or two writers who I read, no matter what they write. Um, Bill Gibson and um, Jonathan Carroll. But Jonathan's stuff is often dark, so I can justify that. <laughs> so how do you find the energy to, are you just, do you get tired reading or do you have a way to just keep yourself going? Well, I can switch from different modes of reading. Mm-hmm. You know, like when I'm reading submissions, that's one thing. And right now I'm actually judging two writing contests. One, luckily I only have three stories to read. Mm-hmm. And the other, I have to read 25 initially. And then me and the other judges are going to switch their top five or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if I get tired of doing one type of reading, then, okay, well, I'll read something. I'll read an anthology for the Earth Fest. Or I will read some tour.com submissions, I have a couple. You know, I mean, luckily I'm working on enough projects that I can switch. And the internet's a terrible distraction. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, CNN, and Washington Post all the time. Mm-hmm. So even if, uh, if a story seems to connect with maybe a current news item or, or something like that, it doesn't, that doesn't sway you as far as whether it'd be a good story to include in something. Not at all. Yeah. No, I mean, it's the story itself. Um, I'm reading, I'm just, I just started Survivor Song by Paul Tremblay, which I, he read part at the beginning of it at a re, at KGB reading. Mm-hmm. It was several months last year, I think. And um, I, I, I mean, it, I don't know if he went, I don't know when he actually finished it and went into production, but it was obviously before pandemic, but it's all about a pandemic that is exactly like what the government is doing now and fucking up. Hmm. I don't use that word. <laughs> I'll, I'll edit. <laughs> I have to do research with him. I mean, I have to look at some interviews with him. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is amazing. I mean, it is like, see, that's the thing. If people are going to write pen- about pandemics now for the future, there are going to be a dozen of them, but they're not going to be original. Although, ironically, I just acquired a pandemic story from uh, someone for tour.com and novella, mm-hmm. but it's not, it's a very weird kind of pandemic. Hmm. Interesting. And it's not about the government reaction. Well, Paul Tremblay's definitely is about how the government is screwing up in the book and, and misinformation and things like that. Hmm. Um, the other, the one that I just acquired is very different. Okay. It's like post, it's after the pandemic is almost over and, people dealing with what their behavior during the pandemic kind of thing. Uh, it's also a, a weird, it's just a very strange story. It's really cool. And that won't be out till next year. Do you have a preferred story length? Maybe not what you accept, but that you no. like to read? No. <laughs> no. I mean, I, I usually want longer stories. I think stories under 3,000, 3,500 words. And science fiction are really tough. Because they're not usually dense enough. There's not usually enough to them. Um, you can do an amusing, lightweight story at that length, but I think it's hard to be really juicy and meaty. Mm-hmm. What do you I think? Mean, I mean, I edit up to, I edit novellas. I don't edit novels at all. Mm-hmm. Well, I have. I'm, I have in the past. I mean, for a few years I was consulting for tour, and I was editing um, Jonathan Carroll's novels and Paul McCauley for about three of their novels. Each of them. Luckily, um, they're pretty clean writers. I mean, by now they're you know expert in their their structure is not an issue. 
and I'm not a novel, since I'm not a novel editor, I'm not expert in structure or fixing structure of that length. Hmm. So that was not an issue, but I'm really not comfortable with, with novels and editing them. What, uh, have you come across flash, flash fiction that you like? Um, it's funny. Well, when I was in Omni, I commissioned tons of it. I mean, what happened in Omni is we didn't have, you know, as we got less space for fiction and other things, I wanted to have more stories, and what I started doing was commissioning short shorts, what I call them. Hmm. Um, the first one, I think the stories were 500 words or less, um, five or six of them, and they came out pretty well. I mean, and then I did like three or four others. Well, maybe actually five sets of them, and later on, they some of them were like twenty five hundred words. You know. But usually, in the past, I found flash fiction usually was pretty lousy. It was usually just vignettes. Mm -hmm. But in the past few years, I think it's gotten much much better. People have learned how to write flash fiction that actually works as fiction, as story, and that's kind of impressive. Mm -hmm. uh, but as I said, I think I don't know why it's changed. Maybe just, I might still know, um, but writers have gotten better at it. Mm -hmm. I think the thing is it may be harder to write science fiction flash, but you can write fantasy and horror much easier. Because science fiction, you have to have some kind of world building, mm -hmm. I think, enough to make it realistic, and that's really hard to do with flash. Right. Hmm. And it always seems to me, I haven't read much flash fiction, because like you say, it seems to just be more vignettes than a story. So, um, Do you ever read stories out loud to give yourself a different idea or feel for them? No, but I'll read, um, I'll read a line out loud to see if it works, if I figure out where, if it needs a comma or not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I suggest that writers do that to see if something's working. I think it's good for writers to do that for on their own work, to see if the language works and if the punctuation works. Mm -hmm. I don't believe in punctuation unless you need it. I mean, I don't think commas, the rules for commas are mostly bullshit, <laughs> I think. I mean, it's when you need, because some words have normal pauses. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, and, well, and early in a sentence, you don't need a comma after, but if it's a long sentence and then you have an end, often you do. I'm, I'm not, I can't even give examples. But these are things you can discern by reading the sentence aloud. Mm -hmm. Because the D gives you a pause. Yeah. Certain letters, certain words automatically make you pause just the way they're said. So you can discern that by reading it loud. And I advise any writer who's certainly writing who's starting out, you know, one thing you find in new writers are really um, stilted language, you know, stilted dialogue. No people talk that way. People don't talk that way. Mm -hmm. It's like that's a way to figure out what works and doesn't by reading it aloud. But as an editor, I don't need to do that. I'm not writing it. But, but as far as punctuation, I think it's good. Has your edit editing um, style or approach changed much over the years? Well, I've just learned more over the years. The more I do it, the more I learn. Mm -hmm. And one thing happens if I notice, you know, I, when I call them author ticks, sometimes a writer, someone even who's been a writer for ages, someone I've worked with, suddenly starts repeating a word or a phrase in a story unintentionally. 
and they're like they're placeholders. The word just is one of them, J U S T. T H A T, that is one of them. Often writers have too many that's. Mm-hmm. And so they, you ha- and now of course with computers you can say, Oh, you have five hundred that's in twenty four pages, get rid of half of them. <laughs> but I always go over them very carefully because there are sentences in which you do need the word that. And sometimes they take out too many. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I've learned. But the thing is, that's something, you know, once it jumps out at me, I can't not see it in a particular story. And then I start counting them. And it's like, oh, God, got to get rid of these. <laughs> but, you know, everything I edit, I learn something. You know, I'm learning. But nothing specific. Do you um do you like editing on a computer or a hard, hard paper? I, no, I'm not, I don't do hard anymore. I mean, I have to be in a computer. But what I, I don't like track changes. What I, I still, um, I usually do a paste and copy and paste onto an email. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes, at least the first one, and then sometimes afterward I'll say, okay, let's just do track changes this time because there's no record of track changes, and I like to have a record. I print out all my emails to the writers mm-hmm. with editing, and I can tick off. Then I, I mean, you know, it used to be you, when you had a hard copy. Oh, when I have writers revise something, I said, I need to see what you've done. Either put it in red type or use track changes, but you have to show me everything you've done. Cross-outs, deletions, whatever. Because it used to be you had a paper copy you can compare it against the computer. But now I'm not going to print anything out. And it's and comparing it on computer to files, it never works. They never line up. At least not Word, maybe in some other program. Mm-hmm. But they never, ever line up. So I, you know, you can't can see what the writer's done unless they tell you or show you rather. And then what I'll do is I'll tick off my, I'll go through my notes. Sometimes I'll say, if it's a lot of stuff, I'll say, tell me below how you're going to fix this before you put it in. Mm-hmm. Depends on the writer. You know, if I work with them a lot and if there's a lot of stuff where I'm just tired and I just don't feel like cutting and pasting up, you know, or doing it that way, so just put it, you know, do a track change and show me everything. And then I go from my printing printout of the edits, and I'll compare what they've done. And if they haven't, if they've forgotten something or haven't responded, I'll say you didn't respond to this. You know, you've got to tell me. Did you miss it, or do you disagree, or agree what? You have to tell me. Mm-hmm. And it's all on, it's computer, but then, as I said, I print out my edits. Mm-hmm. Have you, and sort of thinking about this this work, perhaps. Have you looked back at stories as you were preparing this work? Have you looked back at stories that you um that you helped get published and think, you know, at this point in my career, I wouldn't have published that story or I would have edited it differently than I had? No. Okay. <laughs> I mean, not in edited by. I mean, some of the stories over the years that I've published, I maybe wouldn't have published now. Mm-hmm. But. But not in edit, not in the book edited by those are the ones I chose that I that stayed with me. Mm-hmm. Before, I mean, I've I've edited hundreds of stories, and boy, hundreds of stories. And yeah, there. I don't think I don't know if I would have edited them differently, mm-hmm. but I might not have bought them. Hmm. Changes and, um, but I remember. You know, it's funny. I remember most of the stories I've published. Mm-hmm. Over and what I do is every place I've worked, I've always, at least for all the magazines and webzines, I've always put little summaries of every story so I can refresh my memory if I need to look something up. Hmm. I've never done that for anthologies, but you know I, that would be too much work. And, and I referenced 
edited by for this question because I imagine that you looked back at your a large body of work when you uh, were figuring out what to choose for this this um, this work. Mm -hmm. Well, I went through all my anthologies. I looked at the table of contents and I picked out there are stories that always stayed with me that I've always loved. Mm -hmm. Now the problem is I've also done I've reprinted a lot of stories already that I love. I did not want to put stories in here that I've printed too much, mm -hmm. you know, and so I tried to avoid that, and also with the problem of length. Now, I would have loved to have taken a novella by Lucia Shepard, but his best work was novellas, and I published several of the novellas, most, but they were not books, I mean, they were too long, they were on ma magazines, so I had to pick a representative story of his, so it may not be what I consider his best story for me, but it's it was representative of what he wrote to me. You know, that happens in, you know, in other cases, too. There are stories that I might have chosen by someone that I liked better, but it wasn't published. It was, you know, it just didn't work for some reason. Mm -hmm. I just reprinted it recently. And I also did a book called Nightmare of the Decade of Modern Horror. Mm -hmm. and, oh, no, two decades. Uh, let's see, Darkness, Two Decades of Modern Horror, and then, oh, I can't remember which came first. It's terrible. Um, but I didn't want to repeat those stories too much, you know, either. So that's another issue, you know. And then there are certain writers who I wanted in the book. And so, you know, I had to juggle word length. You know, there's a whole bunch of juggling here. Mm -hmm. Oh, this recent story was 2017, yeah. Okay. The well, so, so the stories in this volume, you didn't edit them at all. You, you, you figured out what you wanted, but you didn't go back and re-edit them. I no, I don't re-edit. Okay. I mean, if I notice something, I mean, obviously, I don't remember, but I mean, it's possible if I happen to notice something wrong, mm -hmm. you know, screwed up, I would have told, you know, I would have asked for a change, but I don't recall, frankly, to be honest, I don't remember. Yeah. And and that's, that's sort of why I ask, because as an editor, you might see a work that you worked on years before and see it now and say you know, kind of have a, a, a momentary pause and say, hmm. No, <laughs> no. It's more common that when I'm editing for the year's best that I'll find stories that I really, really like but have a major editing thing that I want. And I said, and I'll tell the author, it's like, I'll take the story if you fix this. <laughs> hmm. But I, those are stories I haven't edited in the first place, but someone else did, and I thought did not catch something. Right. That was important. Huh. Interesting. As far as horror... Do you at all discriminate against uh, any, like, maybe overly gory horror, or maybe you like that and you'd prefer more gore than less, or, or how do you approach your horror? Um, it's story by story. But as far as elements of, of gore within horror, uh, you know... It totally depends on the story. Yeah. I mean, I don't... I just... Actually, I just finished editing an anthology called Body Shocks, which is body horror, mm -hmm. and it's probably more a higher percentage of gore in that than in most of my anthologies. Um, I have nothing against gore that's used properly in the story. You know, this part, if it enhances the story, but I don't particularly like it just for, you know, its own sake. Mm -hmm. But I have no problem with it inherently. It's just that if you have, if everything's gory, then it becomes boring. Hmm. Right. Yeah, you know, it becomes another, it just doesn't affect you anymore. Mm -hmm. I guess the only work you've done 
for all these years has been editing work. There's not been other work maybe that's, um, or non-writing or non-editing work that's influenced how you do your work? No, I'm just, I'm an editor and that's what I've been doing for the last 40 years. Mm -hmm. And you started your career in the publishing industry, as you said, right? My career, yeah, but I also, of course, did stupid, you know, part-time jobs. (laughs) (laughs) jobs. Uh But no, I mean, I've always been publishing. I mean, since I've been in public, that's all I do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Edit in some way. Or, you know, something involved with reading. I mean, I've done pretty much, yeah. I've sort of heard, so I thought the publishing industry hasn't been doing well, and then I've heard, no, it has, and then I've read stuff that said, oh, it's suffering. Like this year, I guess numbers are down. So I'm just curious. Well, there what- seems to be they're up and down. I mean, every month is different. I mean, apparently bookstores were doing really well, and now they're not. Mm-hmm. I mean, it totally depends on the month-by-month basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not publishing. I mean, that's book selling because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And some things have been postponed little bit. I mean, my book, Best Horror, was supposed to come out in September. It's coming out now, October 6th, because the printers were backed up or something. Hmm. You know, for a certain period of time, no one was working at all, you know, Hmm. because they didn't know how to protect people, and people were out sick. Hmm. Um, And I think that's kind of gone back to normal, in a sense, in some way, at least with book publishing. Mm Mm-hmm. In magazine publishing, I'm not sure. I know that they were having trouble. The magazines were not able to get their magazines on the newsstands. That's a really bad thing. So I don't know how that's going to affect the bottom line of the genre magazines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any impressions on kint, you know, ebook reading, that sort of thing? Um, it's just another mechanism of delivery. It's, not, it's a delivery system. I'm not wild about it personally. I prefer print. When I read a novel, I read it, a book. Mm-hmm. I carry it around with me. Um, when I'm reading short stories for years best, the online magazines, I don't read them online. I do download them to my Kindle. I have a Kindle on my iPad, mm-hmm. and I read them that way. But I'm not wild about reading ebooks. Mm-hmm. Not. I mean, I'm, I'm so sure that if I had to, I would do it more, mm-hmm. but I still prefer print. Have you ever edited works that uh, include, that mix illustrations in with the um, the actual text? I mean, I've had some of the fairy tale anthologies had art elements throughout, but I had nothing to do with that. I mean, that's a production thing. Mm-hmm. I'm actually doing a project. Um, Karen Warren, my Australian writer friend, and I did a project with Facebook where I had just weird tools, weird stuff I collect. Mm-hmm. And she wrote stories about little mini flash fiction about each piece. Mm-hmm. And I took photographs of them. And actually, there's going to be an illustrate a little book, a chapbook of them mm-hmm. from Australia. So, yeah, but we didn't really, I mean, we looked at the, the layout and said, yeah, that works and that doesn't work. But, yeah, um, but I don't, that's a production issue. I mean, I don't do illustrated books. Okay. But I mean, I have done projects, and I did a project for Victor, on Blankman's last name, an artist, a photographic artist, mm-hmm. and that was mythic. He has a series of mythic, um, their photo illustration, mm-hmm. and I had 26 or whatever writers write a piece to go with each illustration, you know, so I did that. 
and that was great. We had an exhibit. We did it. Um, we did a. Um, he did a catalog. Victor Cohn, K O E N, Greek American. Okay. And um, and we had did, we did a he did a catalog that people wanted to buy. Actually, we sold it at the opening, but um, we hoped to get it published, but we couldn't get it together to do. You know, we just no one ever took it on as a publishing project. Oh. And we also had another idea we we're going to do about toys. He has a series of photographs of his toys. Weird toys, and um, oh, that's cool. We were going to do that, but we couldn't say. I mean, we were talking about doing that, but we couldn't get that off the ground. But that's see, that's something that might happen eventually. Mm-hmm. And then I will commission a bunch of stories to go with the art again. Yeah. So yeah, I've done that. It's fun. Mm-hmm. And I asked that question because you know how often you hear like, oh, a, you know, a great book cover will sell a book that's not so good, whereas a, a poor book cover might not you know, might hurt the sales of something that should be a good seller. Well, I've had really good book, really beautiful covers that didn't sell the book and have had really crappy covers that didn't sell the book. So, mm-hmm. you know, you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but I prefer a really good book cover than to a not-so-good one. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then there is cover, I mean, uh, the cover is that's beautiful art, but is not does not translate well to the cover. Mm-hmm. You know, to, it's too muddy. You know, the art, beautiful, but it didn't work for the book. Oh, I see. That happens sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, a bit of a whimsical question. Um, when you were younger, was there any power technology or fictional setting you yearned for or to be a part of? I can't think of anything. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure what you mean. You mean, did I want to live in a fantasy, a particular fantasy land or something? Yeah, like some people have said Middle Earth, you know, or they or they wanted to fly, you know, when they were young or something like that. No. I mean, I can't think of anything offhand. Oh, okay. I mean, I love certain children's books, but I didn't want to live in the world there. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that I recall. Okay. So as far as this particular book, did you have any difficulties in getting it finished or published? It was. I was approached by the publisher. Mm-hmm. Subterranean. Uh, Bill Shaver is the one who suggested it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was excited. I was like totally flummoxed that it was even a suggestion. It never occurred to me. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, he was good enough to let me you know, suggest some cover artists, um, which was great. And I did the Balbusa sisters mm-hmm. do a lot of art for Tour.com. Oh. Um, and I was lucky enough to get um, Gary Wolf to write kind of a, an introductory overview of my career. Even though he doesn't, he's not into horror, but he was able to, you know, he wrote a really great intro. Oh, wow, cool. When the Bond intro, in, um, uh, interviewed me. So, no, I feel blessed. I mean, I hate that word because I'm not religious, but I feel like I was really lucky mm-hmm. and um, am delighted that someone decided that this was a good idea. But no, I, it never occurred to me. I would never do anything like that. <laughs> I mean, it would never occur to me that they would be interested. So. Yeah. Um, so, I, so you did mention some of the issues with maybe story lands or they had been reprinted before. Um, but were there any stories that you wanted to get in but couldn't because of um, other, other issues that uh, – you don't have to say what the issues were, but uh, – Well, no. I mean, I, I – Almost didn't get the, um, the Ted Chang because his publisher is, you know, the rights are 
controlled by his publisher. Mm-hmm. And that can always, that's often an issue with reprinting work, even if by published originally. Mm-hmm. But he was able to persuade the subrights people to not charge an inordinate, inordinate amount of money, which they would have. I mean, it was still too much, but you know, mm-hmm. at least they could afford it. Um, yeah. So other than that, no. And I was able to get it, so. Okay. So you did mention some of the projects that are kind of being batted around, but do you have a, a particular project uh, that you're working on now? Uh, yeah, I, I, I talked about the, the Shirley Jackson one. Oh, right. So, okay. And another one I don't want to talk about because I don't want to get up to this in submissions. Okay. <laughs> and I'm working on the best of year number 12. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I've just had two new contracts in the last six months, so that's great mm-hmm. for original apologies, so that's very nice. And, um, you know, I've been acquiring a bunch of novellas at Tour.com. Um, a novella from Nightfire, Tour's uh, horror imprint, will be coming out in 2021 by Cassandra Cork, one of my writers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Fly Away just came out by Kathleen Jennings. That's been getting great reviews. And Night of the Mannequins by Stephen Graham Jones is getting great reviews. It's coming out tomorrow. Wait. No. What's coming out tomorrow? Hmm. I'm just feeling maybe not, but anyway, huh. it's coming out in September. So there, I mean, these Kathleen's just came out like a week ago. Got a bunch of more novellas that I do. You know, someone sometimes we buy things on pitches. Mm-hmm. So I'm waiting for a novella that's due in September in a few weeks. When that comes out, I'll read it and edit it. I'll read it first, and I don't have to edit it for a while. If we accept it, it should be fine. And um, another writer who I've worked with, who we bought a novella from. You know, I don't. I they haven't been announced officially, so I don't want to tell you know say anything about them. Oh, okay, fair. Um, yeah. Um, and also, we're trying to buy two novellas from someone who we published already mm-hmm. <laughs> on pit, on two pitches that she gave us. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff. I'm way too busy, basically. <laughs> you do, you seem to have a yeah, lot I mean, of energy. And not all do at the same time. But when I talk about this, that, and the other thing, you know, I mean, they are staggered. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have on my calendar, okay, just end stories that are coming out that I've been buying from Twitter.com. It's like, okay, this is coming out, then it's due to production, then, so I need to edit it there. Mm-hmm. You know, backtrack from when it's going to be due. And I always do a, a line edit before anything goes into production. You know, I may work with the author on several revisions before I even buy the story. But even if I've done that at the several weeks before it's due to production, I will go over and I'll do this for anthologies too. Mm-hmm. I'll always do a final edit on everything. So you had touched on sci-fi, horror sci-fi or sci-fi horror. Do you, what's the question I have? I, I'm a fan of, of of sci-fi horror, do you, since you don't like doing sci-fi as much anymore, but you do prefer horror, would you still do sci-fi horror? Well, I still do science fiction. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, the, one of the novellas coming in September is science fiction. Mm-hmm. I mean, I edited also Kelly Link's, uh, sorry, Kelly Robeson's Life, Guys, Monsters, and the Lucky Peach, which is a hard science fiction novella that came, that was out a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. So I've been editing science fiction too, and several uh, stories that I've been buying. Richard Cadry just wrote a story, a science fiction story for me, the first one in a while that's mm-hmm. coming out, Protocom next year. 
So I've been editing all of it. You know, I still edit science fiction. In fact, for tour.com, I'm trying to acquire more because I want to keep my hand in. Hmm. But as far as, do you see much sci-fi horror? Yes. <laughs> um, sometimes. I'm trying to think if I've actually acquired any. Okay. Um, I guess that one of the novellas that I was talking about, the pandemic one, I guess is science fiction horror. Mm-hmm. To me, it's more horror, but I guess it's science fiction horror. And that's sort of the question I have. Like, where do you, you know, where is that scene? Well, if, is there a seam? You know, where does it, is there some point where it tips into one or tips into the other? Or, yeah, you know? I mean, science fiction horror is a part of horror fiction. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just one of the many sub-topics, sub-genres of horror fiction. Mm-hmm. Supernatural, ghost stories, science fiction horror, terror tales. I mean, these are all types of horror. Mm-hmm. Alien, um, Lendingen and the Ant versus the Ants, uh, The Fly, The mm-hmm. Thing, from yeah. another planet. These are, all, these are all science fiction horror. I mean, it's a long tradition in horror, you know, combined. Yeah. I mean, who goes there, which is what The Thing was made of, you know, made out of, um, I don't know, I mean, that may be one of the earliest, maybe the, the probably earlier ones than that. Hmm. Okay. I just wanted to ask about that. Um, where can people find you online? Do you have a website or social media? I have a website that's not as up to date as it should be, but I'm always on Facebook and Twitter. Mm-hmm. And just people can look you up by your name? Yeah. I mean, if they want to actually contact me, there's a form on my website. Okay. And I'll spell out your name for, for listeners. Yeah. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Ellen is E-L-L-E-N. And, and Datlow is D-A-T-L-O-W. Right. Sorry, I think I mispronounced it that second. <laughs> you did slightly, but I didn't correct you. Right. So, as um, I said it, I was like, ah, I'm, I'm doing And you can get an idea of what I've worked on. I mean, I get emails every once in a while people who want to hire me to edit a novel. I said, I don't do that. Where did you get the idea? Because I'm an editor. I, I only work for publishers. Hmm. I only buy things for people or for anthologies. I do not randomly. I'm not a freelance editor of that type. Mm-hmm. I'm like a consulting editor. I do not take on projects and edit them for unpublished people. Mm-hmm. Unpublished writers. That's not what I that's not what I do. Mm-hmm. You know, so at least once every two weeks or maybe once a month or so I, I get something to my website saying, Can you you know, can you edit my novel? I'm like, No, I don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that people <laughs> she doesn't do that. I don't do that. Sorry. <laughs> there are people who there are people who do that. Mm-hmm. And I used to recommend a friend of mine, but he's not doing it anymore, so I can't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't know who else is. Right. But I'm sure there are people online and just do research about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? Not that I can think of. But I, this was fun. This was a lot of fun. Good, good. I'm glad. All right. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, please subscribe. Please also rate Full Contact Nerd and review it if you can. I have many more options to nerd out on sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. You can check out my website, chrisalvarez.com. That's Chris without an H. I have 20 mini-blogs on the site covering sci-fi, fantasy, horror, gaming, writing, mysteries, 
folklore, mythology, and many more topics. You can find my video playlists and my original videos on YouTube under Chris Alvarez. I cover sci-fi short films and games, fantasy fiction, horror short films and games, video and board game design, and more. You can get interesting news on fiction and fiction studies on my Twitter page, Chris Alvarez FCN. You can find cosplay and convention photos on my Instagram page, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi. You can sign up for my newsletter on new books on my websites, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. Thank you for listening, and keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.